Uh, welcome to our midweek study this week. So we are venturing into the last installment of our lesson, The Kingdom of God is Like. And in this lesson, we will describe the purpose for which God's kingdom was established here on earth. So before we get started, let us pray. Our blessed Heavenly Father, we love you so very much, Father. And Father, we are indeed grateful and thankful, Father, of the love that you have for us, Father, by allowing your Son to suffer and die for our sins. And Heavenly Father, it is really hard to fathom living in a world that you are not in control of. And Father, we pray that you will, that we as human beings will always allow you to have access into our hearts, Father, and therefore have access into this world through us. Father, thank you for allowing us this time tonight as we study. These things I pray and thank you for in Christ Jesus' most holy name. Amen. The foundational text of our lesson is Matthew chapter 28, uh, verses 1 through 20, which we will get there as the evening goes on. So as we work our way up to that, what we find is this. Each of the four men who recorded the life And the ministry of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus had his own perspective and objective in mind when assembling his eyewitness account of the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the ascent of Christ Jesus into heaven. And we refer to this as the synoptics account. For example, John's gospel is the most philosophical of the four. He, in in that he uses imagery such as Jesus is light to convey the concept that Christ Jesus is the embodiment of truth. Mark, on the other hand, represents Jesus as the powerful son of God, and he goes about devoting much of his account to describing 18 of the 35 uh, recorded miracles of Christ Jesus. And he brings forth most of all the gospel writers. Luke, on the other hand, is interested in showing Jesus, the son of God, as fully human. He did this by grounding his gospel record in, in precise history and the social and, and religious customs of the Jewish nation. Matthew's unique perspective is to prove that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, according to scriptures, and he does this in two ways. Number one, first he proof texts much of Jesus's life and ministry to passages in scripture that describe and also foretold what the Messiah would say and do when he did appear. There are 68 Old Testament references in Matthew which supports his point about Jesus. Matthew is always connecting Jesus to the Old Testament prophets. He used things like, as it was said or as it was foretold. Matthew is the only writer to specifically describe Jesus as a royal figure, the promise, the promised king from David's lineage, the true king of the heavenly kingdom. So with that said, anyone seeking to develop um, the biblical theme of the kingdom of heaven or anyone trying to teach on this particular topic or, or various facts, facets of this theme, need to examine Matthew's account very closely, since his gospel is completely immersed in the imagery of the king and his kingdom. 
So our final installment is actually entitled Kingdom Victory, the Power of Proclamation. And there are two things that we need to consider, and you see them on the board there. One is the victory, the other is the proclamation, and, and Matthew addresses both. So, so first let us examine the events that occurred during Jesus' final hours leading up to his death and subsequent victorious resurrection three days later. Now, many writers and commentators have referred to the last hours of Jesus' life, including his torture and crucifixion, as the Passion. And, and recently, we have a, a, had a series here that was entitled The Passion and the Glory. And in that lesson, uh, that series of lessons, we surmise that the Passion was Christ Jesus allowing himself to suffer and die on the cross for our sins, whereas the glory was his victorious resurrection. And like the other three gospel writers, Matthew devotes the final portion of his written record to the passion and the resurrection of Christ Jesus and also as the commission or his commission to the apostles. The passion is divided or can be divided into three sections. The first, we have the final hours with the apostles. The time with the apostles, the apostles included several scenes. The first is when a woman anoints Christ Jesus' head with costly perfume. And when we look at what was happening there, this was both a gesture of honor and respect, as well as a prefigurement of his death, as his body was being prepared for the grave. The anointing, the anointing occurred as, as Jesus ate with the disciples at the house of Simon the leper in Bethany. This act, from reading scripture, we find moved Judas to make an arrangement with the Jewish leaders to find a place and a time which was convenient for them to arrest our Lord. The second scene is the Last Supper. The period of the year was the Passover when thousands of Jews from all over the world converged on Jerusalem to celebrate this religious event. They would sacrifice a lamb and gather to eat the Passover meal in remembrance of the time that they were liberated from Egyptian slavery many years before. And Christ Jesus, being a devout Jew, gathered his apostles and together they shared the Passover meal. Near the end of the meal, In Matthew 26, we see he institute a new meal of sorts. From that day forward, he told his disciples they would share the Lord's Supper of bread and wine to commemorate his death on the cross to save them from the condemnation due mankind because of sin. In other words, what he was saying was this. No more sacrificing of the lamb. Why? Because he was the final sacrifice for sin. He was indeed the lamb of God. No more bitter herbs to eat as a reminder of the bitter uh, experience of slavery in Egypt. From now on, the unleavened bread would represent his pure body often on the cross. And the fruit of the vine or the wine would represent his blood shed for sin. The entire experience would now commemorate their freedom from sin and to a promise of eternal, of a rather an eternal home in heaven with God. 
Now, the third scene was played out in the Garden of Gethsemane, which was located outside the gates of Jerusalem, the walls of Jerusalem. It was there that Christ Jesus struggled in prayer with his humanity, which recoiled at the thought of what he was about to face or he would face. And you think about it, this would be a normal reaction for a human, for the human part of his nature. And in the end, we find the apostles are with him, but they're not much help because they are weary. They're weary with sorrow. They're weary for lack of sleep. So the final scene shows Christ Jesus coming to grips then with the horror that was before him. And as he does, Judas, the traitor, arrives to betray him into the hands of the Jewish authorities. At this point, the apostles, as Christ Jesus had predicted they would or prophesied that they would, they scattered. Now, it's interesting that each event that we talked about contains a prophetic element about the death to come. For example, the anointing prefigured his burial, the supper, his remembrance, the garden, a preview of suffering and surrender. Note that in each instance, our Lord is preparing himself and he's also preparing his apostles for the death he would endure in only a few hours. Part two of the passion scenario are the trials. Again, Matthew 26. Uh, Christ Jesus had several trials or hearings, if you will, which were organized in an unlawful way. We'll see about that. For example, they were done at night. They were done without all of the leaders present. There was no 24-hour period of reflection which was required for trials where the end result was a death sentence. This law provided a cooling off period which was ignored in their haste to execute Jesus. Think about those trials for a minute. The purpose of the trials was not to determine truth or even justice. No, these were show trials, if you will, that were conducted to provide a reason or a charge by which Christ Jesus could actually be executed. And Matthew describes both scenes here. The first was the hearing before Annas, which quickly uh, was, was former high priest, and that quickly changed when he passed Christ Jesus on to the current high priest, Caiaphas. Here he was mocked, he was baited at, by those assembled. There was no charge because one after another, they find themselves contradicting themselves. Finally, out of, you might say, <laughs> desperation, you might say, Caiaphas asked Jesus directly if he thinks he is the Messiah. And Christ Jesus, being true to himself, does not deny the claim. And that was what Caiaphas was looking for. He was looking for that charge. He was looking for that charge of blasphemy, someone claiming to be God, so he that was he was desperately looking for that so he can execute Jesus. But there was a catch. Before we get to the catch, you see, under the Jewish law, blasphemy was punishable by death. Here's the catch. It could only be decreed by a Roman court and carried out by Roman law. So the next important trial that we look at is where uh, Christ Jesus is brought before Pilate, the Roman governor. So the Jews bring him before Pilate, hoping to persuade him to to go ahead and carry out the death penalty they have levied against Christ Jesus. And Pilate, what we find in examining Christ Jesus, finds nothing on the, on the Roman law to justify an execution. 
The more he speaks with Christ Jesus, the more he wants to release him. Even Pilate's wife had sent word to him saying, you need to let this Jewish prisoner go because she had been having dreams about him. And Pilate even tries to exchange a notorious murderer, but to no avail. Why? Because the Jewish leaders were adamant. And finally, when he sees that the Jewish leaders are on the verge of causing a riot, he relents and permits the execution to go forward because his mindset was this right here. It is... uh, (laughs) He would not want to release one innocent Jew and have the trouble that results because that would be a bad blemish on his governing record. So in both trials, then, this is what we have. No proof or credible charge was made. No guilt was found. No crime was committed. And no justice was meted out. Jesus was falsely accused, illegally tried, improperly sentenced, and brutally executed for men who he really was. And there's an irony here. The irony is this. They killed him because of who he was. So anytime we feel, anytime we feel unjustly treated, Anytime we feel underappreciated, anytime we feel falsely accused or, 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 or frustrated by someone or discouraged by someone, compare your experience to what they did to the one who was, and none of us can say this, completely innocent and without sin, and we should get a proper perspective. Part three of the passion, it describes both the crucifixion and the trial, a burial, I should say. Matthew 27, verses 32 through 66, describes these related events. Roman crucifixion, it was merciless. It was excruciating. And most of all, it was deadly. So much so that a Roman citizen was not even allowed to be put to death in this way. It was reserved for the worst of criminals. It was reserved for slaves and foreigners. Now, the interesting thing about Matthew here, he does not provide much detail about the crucifixion itself, but rather he spends more time describing the reaction of the people who were present at the cross. For example, the soldiers as they gambled for his clothing, the crowd who mocked his helpless person on the cross, the Jewish leaders who taunted Christ Jesus, and the criminals crucified with him who insulted him, one of which later repented. Matthew also describes the unusual things that took place once Christ Jesus actually died. For instance, the veil of the tomb being torn, uh, the veil of the temple being torn in two. The earth shook. Some were raised from the dead who had been disciples and believers. One of the centurions who was there at the at the uh, crucifixion was converted on the spot, and Christ Jesus' female disciples gathered together to witness his final moments. Matthew also describes the fact that above his head on the cross, there was a sign that read, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. The Romans had put it there to annoy and humiliate the Jews, and the Jews had objective and wanted Pilate to actually write, he said, I am the King of the Jews. And in saying this and doing this and attempting to do this, they were attempting to put the humiliation on Christ Jesus and remove it away from themselves. But but Pilate was adamant as well. And the sign remained as it was originally written. 
So think about this. Despite the lies and the disbelief, what was written above the head of Jesus was as a form of mockery was in the end the exact truth of the matter. He was the king of the Jews. The Jews, in collaboration with the Romans, had executed their own Messiah. Matthew goes on to, to describe the scene of Joseph of Arimathea and Mary Magdalene as they prepared a body for burial. Now, there were others who participated, but Matthew, for whatever reason, only mentions these two. He also describes how the Jews, knowing of Christ Jesus' prophecies concerning his resurrection, how they went to Pilate to make sure that the tomb was properly guarded. He permits them to double the guard to put a stone and a seal on it so that there would be no tampering and no switching of bodies and parading someone around who looked like Christ Jesus looked, pretend that he had been resurrected or having a fake resurrection, if you will. This is the final scene leading up to the glorious event where Christ Jesus will provide insurmountable proof to confirm his claim. When we look at this text, we see proof text here to provide and confirm the claim that he is the king of God, the the king of the kingdom of God in heaven, as well as the king of the kingdom of God on earth. Who else, who else could be king of the kingdom of God on earth but the one who was resurrected from the dead? So as we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 28, we want to first look at the first 15 verses there. Matthew 28, the first 15 verses. Let's go ahead and do a little reading now. The Bible reads, Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So it was early Sunday morning. As several of his female disciples came with the hope of finishing the burial process that had begun the day before, but they had to end it because it was too near the Sabbath. And Matthew also describes what happened before the women arrived that morning. The angel's presence had caused an earthquake when he rolled away the stone. The angel appeared as a man. Matthew describes the angel in terms of a bright light. The guards fainted. They were afraid and unworthy to see the sight of the risen Christ. Verse 5. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. Just as he said, Come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Verse 8. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and, and ran to report it to his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. 
Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee, and there they will see me. The angel instructs the women as to what has happened and what they should do. On their way to do this, Christ Jesus appears to them, and they worship him as the king. He also repeats the instructions of the angel who originally received those instructions from Christ Jesus. Verse 12. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while you were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story was widely spread among all the Jews to this day. So Matthew describes the scene where the Jewish leader constructs a story to explain the disappearance of the body and the amazing experience of the soldiers. It is interesting to note that Matthew credits this story as something that was still being spread by the Jews to discredit the resurrection. And this is some 30 years later when this, when this gospel is being written and circulated. But Christ Jesus has risen. And the tide of human history will now change forever. A new king is crowned to rule over the kingdom of God. The kingdom that God established on the earth in place of the evil ruler that held the power of death over people. One royal duty remains to be carried out. Matthew 28 verses 16 through 20. What we find is that Christ Jesus' position as Savior and King has been established, fulfilling all of the prophecies about him. The prophet said that the Messiah and true King of God's people would provide proof of his identity by resurrecting from the dead. Now, many prophets and leaders back then did miracles. They raised dead people and won great victories, but only the Messiah, only the King, would die for the people and resurrect three days later. This was the final proof of his identity as king and as savior. Romans 1 and verse 4 says this, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Now that this fact has been established, there remains one last act for the king to do. He now gives his apostles a commission and the authority to proclaim the God's, the king's message, rather, throughout the world. The commission and the message are as follows. Verse 18, Christ Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In reviewing the details of our Lord's suffering, death, and resurrection from Matthew's gospel, we see the proclamation of the king's victory through his glorious resurrection. You know, we say this, 
you are to, well, you have to go preach the gospel. You have to go preach the gospel. Think about that for a minute. What is that? In reading this chapter, we have been preaching the gospel in that we have been proclaiming the good news of the life, the ministry, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and ascension into heaven of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. This is the gospel. There is power in the proclamation. But the question is, where is the power? Is the power based on the eloquence of the speaker? For this guy, I hope not. It's the power in the amount of detail. It's the power in the type of presentation using images and songs and grammar, uh, dr- grammar and uh, drama, I should say, or emotions. Is that the power? No. The power of the pro- proclamation is not found in the speaker or the style, but in the content of the proclamation itself. We proclaim that Jesus, king of the kingdom, has achieved victory over man's greatest enemy. And man's greatest enemy is death. This victory has been witnessed by hundreds of people. It has been recorded and preserved in the Bible. And like previous believers who have been given the task to proclaim this good news, we too must proclaim it in our generation. We are responsible for today. We are responsible for this place. We're not responsible. And the cities I'm going to mention, because it goes back to that lesson, the passion and the glory. We're not responsible for New York. We're not responsible for Tulsa. We're not responsible for Rio de Janeiro. We are not responsible for the congregation across town across the state, across the country, around the world. We are responsible for our community, our town, our neighbors. We are responsible for those who do not know the gospel. We are responsible for those who identify at Anchorage Church of Christ. And the question is this, how can we truly help someone else take care of their house if we are not taking care of our own house? There is power in the proclamation of Christ Jesus' victory. Why? Because the resurrection is the answer to every doubt, to every fear, to every failure, to every disbelief in this fallen world. And we, we are responsible for taking this proclamation to the people around us. I want to take us back about four years ago. It was October 1st. 2017 and a man managed to kill 59 people and injure over 500 attending a concert before killing himself this was listed as the worst mass murder in American history it's like this guy won a title or something and this seems to appeal to the mind uh, to the mind of deranged people thinking wow 59 how do I do 60 do I need a bigger gun do I need more bums the media loves this because immediately after the incident politicians and lobby groups began to began rather debating gun control and people started raising funds for the wounded they there were uh endless articles about how to prevent these type things uh, more counseling better screening uh more security at concerts all the talk about how to prevent needless killings and death but nobody Nobody bothered to bring up the idea that death was not the issue. 
because everybody dies at some time or the other. And in some way or another, it's sad, but it's true. The issue was judgment. What happens after we die? This person sent 59 people to judgment. Whether they were ready or not, they were going to judgment. They had no time to prepare, no time to think, no time to review, no time to repent of wrongdoing. They were at a concert, listened to music, and the last thing on their mind was judgment. We know that there would be a judgment. The Hebrew writer tells us that Hebrew 9 at verse 27, it is given to man to die once and then comes the judgment. We are aware of the fact that death comes to every one of us, albeit in different ways. We die once from cancer, getting hit by a car, old age, arthritis, or we die from a gunshot wound. It is given to man to die once. Sometimes the young die, sometimes the old, sometimes folks die suddenly, and at times death comes after years of suffering. But one thing is sure, we die some way or another, and then comes the judgment. We have confirmation of this with Christ Jesus' resurrection, which, among other things, affirms as true all that is written in the Bible. The risen Savior declares that there will be a judgment. This truth cuts through all the tears, all of the sorrow, all of the clattering uh, uh, media noise surrounding this horrific event. And it speaks to the people involved in the following ways. To the families of those killed, the gospel says, if your loved one was in Christ, you may be sorrowful, and in pain now. But you have hope because Christ Jesus' resurrection guarantees their resurrection and yours as well when the time comes. To those wounded and witness, witnesses scarred for life. Again, 500 people were wounded by bullets or being trampled in the frenzy caused by the shooter. But what about those who witnessed the carnage? You can never unsee the innocent person being murdered. You certainly can never unsee 50 innocent people being murdered in front of your eyes. Your life has changed forever. But to the wounded, to the witnesses of the God, to the witnesses rather the gospel says, you have a chance to reflect on your life. You have a chance to reflect on what is true you have a chance to reflect on what is not true. You have been spared. You can still contemplate the resurrection and what it means to you, what it means for your future. That's the message of the gospel to the wounded in life as well. To the shooter's family, who reported that he had no religious affiliations. His passion was gambling, not God. He now becomes an example of how wicked a person can become without Christ Jesus in his life. And more importantly, why Christ Jesus died on the cross to begin with. 
He may have escaped justice here on earth by taking his own life, but Christ Jesus' resurrection guarantees that he will face God's judgment when all men will be resurrected to be judged for their deeds done in the body. Paul says at Romans 2 at verse 16, on the day when, according to my gospel, God would judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. The proclamation, the proclamation of Christ has the power not only for the good news that it announces, but also for the answers it provides for those who are hurt, sorrowful, and frightened, as well as the warning of judgment to come to disbelievers, mockers, and the wicked in this world. And believe me, I've sat on grand jury duty now since um, July. And I can tell you this for a fact. There are some wicked people in this world. So parents and grandparents, you do well to protect your children. There are bad people in this world who consciously want to hurt us. This shooting is the reason we need to proclaim the gospel and keep proclaiming it until Christ Jesus returns. Let the politicians worry about who has and who doesn't have guns. That's not our job. Our job is to proclaim the gospel. So if you want to gauge how powerful the the proclamation of the gospel is, Try to imagine living in a world without that proclamation. We get a glimpse of that world where only a few people held fast to a promise of salvation far into the future. During the pre-Diluvian era of Noah, the Bible describes a society whose every thought was only evil continually. Can you imagine living in that society? At least in this nation, there are many, many believers. Noah was in a minority. He was in an extreme minority. He did not have a message of great hope or joy. He had a message of salvation. And the bad part, the sad part is that no one listened to him. The other was the king's dream interpreted by Daniel who declared that the entire world would be ruled by pagan empires for over 600 years into the future. And, and you know, we can be amazed at Daniel's ability to, to, as a prophet, to interpret a dream about matters well into the future. We know God led him there. More specifically, in his prophecy, he prophesied the rise and fall of four world empires, one after another. And he was telling the world this right here, that you better get ready because the next 600 years, pagan empires are going to rule. The proclamation of a risen Christ will not fix a broken world. This is the promise of ideologies and politicians. The proclamation's purpose is this. It is to call people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Colossians 1 and verse 13. It is a declaration that brought hope to countless generations before and will continue to bring hope to as many generations to the end of the age that God will allow us to have. The world 
the world is on fire and it will be destroyed along with everything and everyone whose life is bound to it. At Second Peter 1 at verse 4, Peter says, Concerning those who have been saved, that you have escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Note that on Pentecost Sunday, after Peter had finished proclaiming the good news of Jesus' resurrection, Luke goes, Luke goes on to record Peter's ongoing message at Acts chapter 2 at verse 40. With many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on strongly encouraging them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. The kingdom's victory is not that somehow we have won over the world or we've repaired what is broken and bent. The victory is that those who are dead in sin can now be made alive in Christ Jesus and will be resurrected to eternal life when he returns. Brethren, that is the good news. The message is powerful if we would only proclaim it. Stick with me on what I'm about to say, please. The number one reason why churches are small and remain small. The number one reason large churches become small. The number one reason churches die. Listen carefully. The number one reason why Anchorage Church of Christ is in peril is not because we are in small towns or we don't have a full-time preacher. It is not because the building is not suitable. It is not because we do or don't wear masks, because we have or have not been vaccinated, or whether or not there's a virus. These are the symptoms, not causes. The cause for none, the cause for none a very limited growth anywhere is that Christians are not proclaiming. We are not proclaiming. Proclamation is the most powerful tool we have for growing churches anywhere in the world. So what we need to do is go about the business of finding a medium that we have access to and start proclaiming the good news. So the first question to ask ourselves when considering the growth of the church is how are we proclaiming Christ to our community? Are we being trained for evangelism? Do we regularly communicate with our community in some way? Sharing the gospel with them. Inviting them to our congregation to hear God's word being spoken. Are we using all the available medias that are available to us, like radio spots, cable TV, uh, uh, websites, online, uh, gospel meetings, lectureships, you name it? Brethren, if we're having a problem worshiping in person or online, and this is logic, then why would we expect anyone else to worship in any capacity? The more the victory is proclaimed outside of the church building, the more people will eventually end up 
on the inside of the church building. It's as simple as that. No 20-step plan. Simply train and encourage everyone who identify with our congregation. I'm talking about the Lord's congregation here on the bar road to accept that. And let's get individualized here to accept that I, in my own way, is responsible for proclaiming the good news to my mother, my brothers, my neighbors, my family, my children, etc., etc. The more I proclaim the good news on the outside, the more my congregation, our congregation will be filled with people who have heard the good news and respond to it on the inside of the building. It sounds simple. It's not always simple to do. But really, that's the action plan. Those are the marching orders. Nothing new. I hope, I'm pre- I hope that I am preaching to the choir. But, with, but have this mindset. This is something, again, individualized. This is something I always need to keep in my mind. This is something I always need to keep in my heart. In finishing this mini-series, you individually, we individually, are encouraged to proclaim the good news in some way to someone else. This is the action plan. And I pray that God blesses us as we renew our efforts to proclaim the victory of Christ Jesus to our community and to our nation. I want to thank all of you for joining me in this mini-series. And we can't talk enough about the responsibility we have of planting, of watering, and harvesting. I was thinking today when I was a little bit of boy and I, and I asked my granddad about a garden and he had the perfect plan. He gave me a spade and this other thing and gave me some dirt and told me to start digging. I had no idea how to use any of those implements. I was trying to dig the whole garden in one swoop. And my granddad came out there and he said, stop. Let me show you how to do this a piece at a time. And he showed me how to break that ground a little bit at a time. He showed me how to set the rows up. He showed me how to plant the seed. He showed me how to water it. He showed me how to, to weed it. And one day there was a harvest. By the grace of God, there was a harvest. And he showed me the fruits of the work. And that's the way it is with the word of God. We are not experts at it, but there is someone that can help us get better at it. Thank you for your time. <laughs>